0: John Wetzel, Secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, is widely recognized as one of the thought leaders in corrections today. Uh, John's the adopted son of a Lebanon County family, and he rose through the ranks from corrections officer to county prison warden to the Secretary of Corrections under both a Republican and Democrat administrations. John's a former football player, an avid Eagles fan, and father of four, We recently sat down over a cup of coffee. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs at uh, Little Lamps uh, Coffee Shop in downtown Harrisburg. And joining me today is Secretary of Corrections john wetzel john good to be with you yeah good to be here thanks i'm glad you could join me take some time away from prison um you know and uh, it's good to be out a little furlough for the day (laughs) well you get release time that's good and uh well john you you as a listener of uh, bruising views and i appreciate the feedback i've gotten uh you know what this is about i want to we want to know about John Wetzel, the man, yeah. and then we'll get into uh, the, John Wetzel, the warden and yeah. uh, the secretary. <laughs> yeah. uh, probably never thought you'd be called secretary, right? That no, was not absolutely. one of your
1: aspirations. No, or, or being in a responsible <laughs> position would have been a stretch for uh, Up until probably mid-20s, so...
0: Well, John, (laughs) tell us where you grew up, uh, how you grew up, then get into, you know, your interest in the whole criminal justice system, and I know that you basically have worked all your way through uh, from uh, being a a corrections officer to a warden to all... We want to hear that background, because I think it's really, one, interesting... And two, informative to wh- where you're at today and what you're trying to do in terms of reform our, our correction system. And even talk about some of the things that we've done together over the years.
1: Yeah, sure. So I grew up in the, the booming metropolis of Myerstown, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. Uh, Elko High School. <laughs> okay. Uh, class in 1987. That's that's Lebanon County? Lebanon County. Lebanon County? Yeah, quite Lebanon. Okay. (laughs) Um, At at the time I grew up, probably more cows than people. Uh Uh, Uh-huh. That's cool. Uh Uh-huh. And, um, you know, just, I I think uh, athletics was really uh, what made me go to school and (laughs) had me study. I uh, played in high school football basketball and track
0: How, how'd your family end up in
1: Myerstown was that uh, had they lived there a long time or so um, so my dad worked in the trucking industry as a, I think a rate clerk or something like that and I was a little kid when he did this-huh and so we moved to Myerstown because uh, he worked at hall he got a job at halls motors either halls motors or new penn in uh, in Lebanon uh-huh so we moved to Meyerstown when I was one year old. So I don't. And
0: you, ha- you say it correctly, Lebanon. And now, oh, yeah. as a, as a Lebanon resident myself, Absolutely. I've had to uh, make sure I don't call it Lebanon. Right? Oh, oh, uh, oh, you can't say that. It
1: made me mad <laughs> there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how you say
0: it. It's the you ain't from around here, are you? Yeah. yeah. And Lancaster, to it, be yes, clear. That's just right. So we're all on the same uh, page. Uh, here. That's right.
1: So, so uh, you grew up with brothers and sisters there, in older. The, so I was adopted. Um, so my. Older siblings were ten years older. Okay. So I, my parents were more um, neck older generation, uh, the greatest generation uh-huh. than uh, than most of my friends' parents. So it, it kind of was a different kind of more throw old school upbringing, really traditional. Mom stayed at home. Uh huh. Dad worked. I think my mom got a job as like the church secretary part time when I was in high school. Uh, so it was a really kind of traditional uh-huh. um, upbringing with, you know, always meat and potatoes every night, you know, that kind right. of stuff. And, so
0: uh, so uh, all biological uh, brothers and sisters to your parents? Three, no, or three. You
1: three um, so I have two older brothers. Uh, and an older sister, and then I have a younger sister, a year younger than me, who's who's also adopted.
0: Okay, so the two of you were adopted into the family? Yeah,
1: different times. I okay. was adopted first, and then a year later, two years later, uh, she was adopted. Okay. Yeah, I came at birth. Like, So they were actually, I was a foster kid with them. Okay. And this was in, uh, up in the, they lived in Sunbury. Um, so I, I my birth mother was from Williamsport, so I was in foster care with them for a year, and then I was supposed to go back to my birth mother, and it ended up, um, I stayed with them. They ended up keeping me. And, but really, I, almost
0: the only parents you knew were. They're, yeah, yeah. They're, I, I wouldn't from, know.
1: I, I mean, I met my birth mother once, I think my freshman or sophomore year of college, but. I, I don't know any other parents uh-huh. other than my parents. Uh-huh. So...
0: And is your family tight? You guys, are they still living in Lebanon or no, well, my, is everybody... My dad uh, passed
1: away about five years ago. Okay. My mom lives with my brother in Lebanon. Okay. Yeah. So I um, get down there and see them. You know, a job like this, uh, it's... I don't get a lot of time to, to do that, but Mm -hmm. yeah, we, we still talk on a pretty regular basis.
0: Okay. So, uh, go to school in Lebanon and then, uh, where do you uh, head off to college? Okay. So I go to,
1: I go from Elko, graduate in 87, went up to Bloomsburg university to, uh, play football. Uh Uh-huh. And, um, you were, you were a free safety, right? (laughs) (laughs) Never that way too smart to be a defensive guy. First of all, uh, no, I went up to be an offensive lineman, uh,
0: yeah, if this if our podcast had video, they'd know why yeah, that was yeah, a joke. Just Google hey, it. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no free safeties of this size.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, I went up there. Had a really good, um, really good experience. I mean, sports has always been really yeah. uh, a key part of my life. Even after I was done playing, coaching, and uh, you know, this job doesn't afford me the opportunity to do that. But it really, I think, if you're looking for like formative experiences, football i go back to football for almost every... Oh, you
0: bet. And I, I as a former football player, I played Division three, so it's really extension of high school, you know, and college. Uh, but I'll tell you what, those experiences, uh, and when I'm looking at people to hire, people that have played team sports, mm-hmm. athletics, uh, there's certainly uh, something that's been learned there that I think is transferable uh, to the workplace.
1: I and, love college athletes. Yeah. Because I know if you're a college athlete, you can be self-critical. You can be criticized. You understand that it's not about you. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's important. This new workforce, this new folks we have in the workforce uh, aren't always open to constructive criticism, uh, shall we say. But generally, with athletes, you get that. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's important for all of us, to be able to criticize ourselves and, and be able to receive criticism.
0: So you go off to Bloomsburg uh, to pursue a football degree, but uh, had to study along the way, right? That's that's so accurate
1: because (laughs) um, actually after my last football game, I started three years up there, offensive line uh, for the Huskies. Um, After my last football game, uh, I quit school my last semester and went to be a full-time correctional (laughs) officer. Uh, my brother actually... So
0: precisely, you went to school I really, to play football. really did, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, <laughs> with the delusion that I was actually a good football player, like good in the whole context of the world, which was not accurate. Uh-huh. decent Division II player. Yeah. But um, my brother was a correctional officer at Lebanon County. Okay. And I actually started working part-time as a correctional officer while I was in college. So I'd go home over the summer and winter breaks and work a bunch of shifts to have spending money. Um, and then one weekend a month, I'd go home and I'd work two double shifts. So I'd get 32 hours in. And then that would uh, give me money f- for whatever, <laughs> <laughs> a little beer money uh, for the rest of the rest of the month. So um, after I, I quit school, I just went to be a full-time CO. And which, so you, you go back to Lebanon to become a corrections yep. officer at the, the county Yep, uh, at the prison? county. Okay. Yep. So I started in 89, and then I left school in 91, full-time Ninety one, middle of ninety two, I transferred to Berks County, okay, and um, started there as a correctional officer. But Lebanon County, I started at seven twenty an hour. Hmm. When I went full time, I got a whopping forty cents raise. So I was making seven sixty an hour. Berks County was paying twelve sixty seven an hour,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so I went down there, uh, chased the money, and went down to Berks County and uh, spent nine years down there. So along
0: the way, you get married, start having kids. Uh, bring, bring those into the picture here. Yeah, so, here, so.
1: I um, met my wife, got married in uh, 97, 98.
0: So you were, you were at, uh, in Berks County
1: at Berks the time? County, okay. yeah. All right. Um, I actually went back to school in 97. huh. Finished my degree in 98. I still worked full-time. Okay. So I switched to third shift. So I would work all night and then go to school all day. I went full-time one semester. Which I think you can do at 27, certainly at 48, I could not yeah, right, right. work that schedule. So I'd work all night and then go to school all day. I moved to uh, Port Carbon, Pennsylvania, in Schuylkill County. I was a skook for six months. Okay, all right. Because it was halfway between Burks and Bloomsburg, right up 61. Uh-huh. So I'd get a nap when I could and um, finish my degree in 98. Uh, my twins were born. What was your degree in? Psychology. Uh, in psychology. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and and what, what, Were you
0: studying that uh, in your first undergraduate I was. Yeah. I mean, okay.
1: I, I was, that was my major. I don't know that I was studying. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. But when I went back as a grown-up, uh, everything really clicked for me. Mm. Like, I was like a straight mm-hmm. C student uh, and because I had to do that to stay eligible. When I went back, I got all A's. I got my GPA up. And I actually uh, ended up in grad school didn't finish that either, by the way, but it worked out. <laughs> hey, there's still, had, yeah. there's still time. There's still time. probably not going to happen. <laughs> but um, got my degree in May. In June, I promoted to counselor at Berks. And then my career really took off.
0: Okay. Um, so you're a corrections officer and then serving as a counselor. Yeah. Uh, two inmates. Uh, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. And that was, um I loved being a corrections officer. Yep. Probably my favorite job mm. uh, I ever had. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the interaction you really impact individuals, really learn, you know, um, I like interacting with people and really got insight into the system, you know, from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. And, um, not that I had aspirations. I mean, I, I, this would, this was being, uh, secretary of corrections, never on my radar scope, uh, even up until, uh, Governor Corbett offered me the job, was not well, a but Before
0: we get to that, just to, so you, you're, you're married, have how many children, and the ages of those uh, kids? Four. Four kids. Yeah, so
1: I ha- my oldest is 23. She just graduated from Temple.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, she's applying to law schools as we speak. Okay. She unfortunately wants to run for office uh, <laughs> one day. She wants to be the first female senator in Pennsylvania, so she's still safe. Okay, um, okay. I guess McGinty had her worried yeah. a little bit, but it okay. turned out to right. not be that big a deal my twins are 19 well my my
0: my uh, 13 year old daughter i have four as well uh was safe from you know being the first female president so that was her yeah she's
1: Yes, she still has time as well so sorry (laughs) my twins are uh 19 ones in uh college uh was studying chemistry Is now uh i think switching to the family business criminal justice (laughs) Uh, The other one is in a, quote-unquote, gap year, Uh which apparently is a a new thing for kids. Sometimes lasts longer than a year. We may be in that boat, too. (laughs) I mean, with my academic prowess, how can I criticize (laughs) it? And then my youngest is 15. Uh And she's uh, a STEM kid. She's really into math and science. In so you're band. like, where'd this
0: kid come from? Is Yeah, uh, I have no yeah. idea. Yeah, right. No
1: idea. She's, can you help me with my homework? Uh, no. <laughs> Google.
0: Uh, good. So, so uh, you're a corrections officer, uh, then chart the trajectory
1: then. Yeah, it correction-
0: ends up getting you, you know, to... Yeah,
1: eight, so from 89 to 98, correctional officer mm-hmm. uh, at both Lebanon County and Berks County. Then I get my degree, become a counselor for a year. A uh, year after that, I became the head of the Counseling Department at Berks. year after that, I became the head of the Training Academy at Burks. And then a year and a ha- half after that, I interviewed at uh, Franklin County in Chambersburg, kind of on a lark. Mm-hmm. I mean, once I became a, a counselor, a, the supervisor of the Counseling Department, I thought, you know, that maybe this is a career for me. Yeah. And I really want to focus on becoming a county warden. And my goal was like a five year plan, right so i was ninety nine I f- hope by two thousand and four I'd become a county warden somewhere, a deputy warden and um so I interviewed just to see what my market value was. I was thirty two when I interviewed for uh, warden and ended up getting a job in Franklin County. Uh, I'll never forget I went down to interview, and i um first of all, I got lost, so I almost didn't go. <laughs> I almost blew it off oh. and then. <laughs> Um, I, I find it. I find a courthouse, and there's a uh, Confederate monument in uh-huh. Chambersburg. Uh-huh. That's I always a
0: welcoming out, sign to a black guy, right? Yeah. 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 It did not give me warm fuzzies.
1: <laughs> and later I find out uh, they have a monument because the South burned Chambersburg down, right? Uh-huh. Um, but that was not the vibe okay. I got. And then <laughs> to double down on my awkward moments in Franklin County, uh, I walk into the courthouse. And there's a nice lady at the, the front desk and I went to ask her where the commissioner's office was. And she stopped me and said, you're looking for a courtroom, <laughs> 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 which is hilarious. Now, right, right, But I was like, Oh my God, yeah. I'm never going back to this place. So I interview and, uh, have a good interview. And I really didn't want the job necessarily. So I was pretty relaxed. Not that I'm pretty relaxed yeah. generally. Um, but you thought, hey, this is just, I'll go, you know, perform yeah, go, a yeah, good experience, right? Yeah, and let's see where, where I'm at uh, from a market standpoint. And I, you know, 32 is way too young to be a eh? county warden. And um, they called me back for a second interview and a tour of the jail. So I went and toured the jail because I love touring jails and prisons. Um, and I got to tell you, the staff really drew me in because it was a terrible, uh, the physical plant was terrible. It was not a great place. But all the staff their uniforms were just they were wearing the uniforms properly i could see that they cared about the job i could also see that they were frustrated and you can work with that i mean if, mm-hmm. if you have staff who are bought in and you have any ability to lead people and a game plan uh, and the so had you led hard.
0: anybody at this point well i mean so you're, you're the um
1: the running the counseling department okay. is a leadership role yeah. training academy is a leadership role but not running a not yeah. running a facility, but uh-huh. it was small. Okay, maybe um, so. You're like h- I, I can't screw this up too bad, huh? That, that was my exact <laughs> choice. Like they said, describe the place. I said it's a fixer upper. You know, <laughs> I figured, man, it, it, it can't get worse than this. So. I go back for my second interview, and the commissioners are actually downstairs waiting for me. And I go, oh, no, they're going to offer me the job. <laughs> so I have a good second interview. They call me and offer me the job, and I panic, right? And I, hang up the, I go, I'm not interested in hang up the phone. Just total panic. And I walked over to talk to my warden. Now, the warden I worked for, George Wagner, was uh, the youngest warden in the history of Pennsylvania. He actually got it at, like, 30 or 31. Hmm. And so I went and talked to him, and, and he just gave me great advice because I didn't know about negotiating for salary. I didn't know about any of it, and he said, "Look, there's only sixty two of these positions in the state you're capable of doing a job. Um, you should take it you know I think it's a, the right choice for you. I mean, you have the opportunity to promote here. I don't know what the timeline for that is." And I said, "Well, what about salary?" He goes, "Look, just ask for what you think is fair and tell him like just say if you um." if you perform well would they consider you know reconsider your salary and he said you know you don't want to be a—I forget how he described it you know maybe a pirate or you know you don't want to go in there and and, um, make it all about the money and and, to my detriment I still have not figured that part out (laughs) Um, you know I haven't made the leap to private sector and all the glamour and money and none of the stress but um, so I had a you know great opportunity at Franklin County we ended up Um, Doing some interesting things down there. Um, I actually left Franklin County nine years after I got the job, with less inmates. Uh, Crime went down over the same time frame, like a 20% reduction in inmates. Uh, We built a new jail down there. We really um, did some transformative stuff in this in in an environment that's ultra conservative. Yeah, like I think Franklin County is probably two thirds Republican, and. Probably fifty percent straight ticket, yeah.
0: and the Democrats are more conservative than the Philly Republicans, right? Yes, certainly. Yeah, yeah, certainly. <laughs> if you can find one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So, so uh, you know, you said, "Hey, we left." With, I left with fewer inmates. Um, you use that as a uh, a measurement of success, not one of. Hey, we're locking up more people. Therefore, we're doing a better job, right? Yeah. I mean, that—that's a little bit of a twist. Usually, in government, they say, "Hey, we're serving," quote unquote, serving more people. Whether it's in welfare, we got more people taking public services, and they'll use that as a badge of honor. I—I uh, I think many times we've got our measurements all wrong, uh, in you know, in the public policy realm of. What success looks like? Well, assuming um, we measure, yeah, I mean, right. let's start yeah, with that. If, yeah, first right? of all, yeah, yeah. most of the time we don't measure yeah. anything, right?
1: Um, but yeah, I mean, I think when you look at, at criminal justice policy, certainly criminal justice policy in America, you've seen an overuse of incarceration in response to crime. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so I don't I, I don't buy into this. Oh, you know, in the back room smoking cigars, they came up with this plot to lock a lot of people yeah. up, especially. Poor black people. I don't buy that. Yeah. You know, I've worked in government a long time. Not met many people can keep a damn secret. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> so, Not even two people. Yeah, yeah really. Yeah. If
1: two people know, it's out. It's out. But um,
0: That's a Harrisburg secret, by the way, is you tell one person at a time. Yeah.
1: That, that, so that, that's, that's how <laughs> yeah, the Harrisburg that's secret is. exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Yeah, anywhere. that's right. Yeah, But um, but no, we, we made policy decisions, and I think... Um,
0: Was that what the commissioners asked of you? I mean, were they saying look we're not looking to uh, you know expand or, or was this you kind of doing the whole I'll just ask
1: for forgiveness rather than permission of how I operate uh, uh, no it was I tell you what we did is just really went in and tried to get a good understanding of who was in the jail mm-hmm and the jail needed to be replaced. And I remember we had this architecture firm. They hired a firm to come in and do population projections. And, of course, um, you know, architects get paid more money the bigger it is, so they're making these ridiculous projections. And we need the Taj Mahal We need, Mahal 600, here. Yes. We need uh, 600 beds to do your needs for the next 20 years. And... Uh, I remember the chairman of commissioners, a guy named Warren Elliott, who's my mentor to this day. Also, uh, Senator Alloway, his mentor. Because, okay. you know, Rich and I, uh, he was a magisterial district judge who covered my jail. Okay. So Rich and I go, so you guys go way back. back to okay. when, we were, when we were Franklin Countyans. <laughs> and um, I remember he walked out of the room, and then he pulled me aside, and he said, John, I can't, uh, we're not building a 600-bed jail. And he said, beyond that, commissioners don't get reelected. We build a jail. So... You need to go convince the public that this is the right thing to do, which turned out to be the best thing that ever happened mm. to me because I uh, spent a year going out and meeting with every Rotary Club, uh, you know, the rubber chicken Circle, yeah, right? Yeah. Rotary, Lions, Golden Agers. Franklin County has a huge retirement uh, population because it's uh, buts Maryland, so you get a lot of... Um, People
0: escaping high taxes. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> and, you know, so... Um, and uh, folks on fixed incomes, property tax is a big deal, yeah, right? Yeah. So.
0: Well, and we don't tax pensions, so there's another uh, yeah. financial... Ban- okay.
1: So, um, you know, for me to go out and meet with these people and, and talk about... I talked about who was in the jail. Like, Franklin County is uh, at the intersection of Route 30 and 81. So it allowed people from Franklin County to say... Well, it's not Franklin Countyans who are in our jail. This, these are people, mm. you know, because we're along 81, they're coming from other areas. So I tested that. I measured it, looked to see who was in our jail. Turns out that um, not only was, I think, 75% of the people from Franklin County, um, 50, 60% were born in either Franklin or Fulton County. So the folks in the jail were Franklin County. They're natives. Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. And and Franklin County is one of those areas where they have a, a higher percentage of people who are born and die there than most counties. Hmm. Um, so people don't leave. So um, the religious community also is very important down there. Like I had three, you know, at our apex, 400 inmates. We had 100 religious volunteers. Hmm. Wow. And, you know, they just really cared about the people. Um, but I think... When, when we, you say
0: volunteers, people coming in to, to serve inmates, yeah, and, and, yeah to okay. do religious services, okay.
1: counseling, okay, Bible studies, uh huh. Um, and do so, you
0: see that as a good thing? Absolutely. That that was
1: something that was uh, helpful to the the culture, if you will, of, yeah. of the of the prisons. Both the culture of the prison and and the reality is keeping people out of out of prison or jail is difficult. Yeah. I mean, people graduate from Harvard and commit crimes, right? So once you become criminally involved and you're incarcerated, you're likely addicted, pretty high potential that you have mental illness. Um, You certainly um, have some issues in following rules and those kinds of things. And because of collateral consequences and having a criminal record, it's going to be difficult for you to get employment, right? So... A key piece. And And what,
0: what, 90% that come through the front door are coming out the back door, Yeah, it's actually 95% of of everybody
1: comes through state prison's front door. Okay. But at the county level, it's 99%. Yeah, yeah, right, right. You know, almost everyone's going to get out eventually. And so having... Which is
0: why it has to be more than just punishment. Absolutely. Because if
1: we're only about punishment, uh, we're not rehabilitating or correcting the whole corrections, right? I mean, on every level, I couldn't agree with you more. First of all on getting a financial return on your investment yeah i mean at the county we it costs about 60 dollars a day to incarcerate someone um i think I, I try to conceptualize it like this i think we should spend money once when someone gets involved in one of these um one of our systems mm-hmm. right behavioral health criminal justice i my premise and i really just think i, I really, my goal in life is to to run a government agency that makes sense I've not achieved that. I'm not not even sure I've ever seen that. But, man, it just makes so much sense to me that if someone needs to get involved with government, we'd put them in the system where they can get the most help, right? Mm -hmm. So that speaks to, like, someone who's addicted to opioids. Instead of throwing them in your jail, let's get them off opioids, you know?
0: Um, Because it won't be a one and done. If you just lock them up and then send them back out, they're coming
1: back. Certainly. And... Uh, but if they if they have to come to jail or they have to come to state prison, let's identify what the root cause of the crime is. Let's try to address that. And at the county level, you have a great advantage of plugging them into a pro-social network in the community. Mm-hmm. Churches are great pro-social. Most churches are great <laughs> <laughs> pro-social networks. And, and, you know, I, I, I know growing up, um, my life could have went a bunch of different ways. And... I look back on people like Warren Elliott, on some of the coaches I had. Uh, Dave Fortunato was my offensive line coach in, in college. And um, and high school coaches like Steve Oliver. And I, I look at, at times where I could have went sideways. Yeah. And, and in my case, I really uh, respond well to A kick you know, getting the butt? screamed oh, at yeah, and, yeah, there you go. and put down and <laughs> insulted and all that stuff. <laughs> um, which I, you know... It worked for me. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Certainly, I'm not sure some of those guys could coach nowadays, yeah. but I had people who, when, I, when the chips were down, I could rely on to give me advice. And, and this is an oversimplification, but you know, you just get out of jail, you're hustling, trying to get money. Um, you call someone who's maybe uh, a member of the chamber or a member of the Rotary Club or a member of your church and say, hey, um, I really am struggling, I need money. And that person says, well, I know so-and-so. Or why don't you go to temp force and I'll be a reference for you and let's try to get you a job. Or you call somebody else and they go, hey, I just walked by this appliance store and I saw they don't lock their back window. And that's an oversimplification, mm-hmm. but it's not yeah. that yeah. overly simplified. I think that well, people say that you're you a combination of your five closest friends. I think that works. I mean, one of the things we measure as far as risk for future crime is who you hang out with. Uh Sure. So your parents were right Right. when they say when you hang out with jerks, you become (laughs) a jerk, right? Um, So that that really is why I think when a community buys in, you get better outcomes.
0: So so let's get back to your story. So you're you're a warden at uh, the Franklin County Jail. Yep. Uh, and you're one of, you said, 62. So we have one in every county, and then where are those there's, extra two? Well, there's
1: some count. No, we have 67 counties. Oh, yeah, some sorry. counties don't have county yeah, jails. Yeah. So <laughs> I actually think we're down to 60 maybe. So okay. some of the smaller counties, it's just it, jails are expensive. Oh, Sure. And so it's cheaper for them to rent from adjacent counties. Okay. For instance, Franklin County rents their beds to Fulton County because Fulton County is so small Okay. and doesn't have a jail. Never did. And if you don't have to have one, why uh, seek to to build one? I yeah, suppose. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, it may cost you a little bit more on the the per diem, but yeah. long term with yeah. liability and oh, lawsuits yeah. and all the un, uh, unintended medical costs and those kinds of things.
0: So, so you're you're at Franklin. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, how do you pop up on the radar for from a statewide standpoint? What do you, what are you doing? Um, how is it? I mean. It sounds like your experience as a corrections officer and kind of seeing it from the various levels, from the inside, um, is, is the great experience of of the of a leader, right? Yeah, I mean, I think,
1: I call that the old-fashioned way, yeah. you know, not not who you know, but what you know. And, uh, you know, again, what football taught me is just work hard. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just work, outwork everybody. I mean, you, there may be people who are smarter and, Better connected, heck maybe even better looking, but you control how hard you work. So I, just early on, I'm, I just decided I'm. After my first 27 years when I was in slacker mode, uh, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna just be the hardest working person in the room always. Mm-hmm. Like I walk in any room. I look around, I know I'm out working everybody, and and that's just been my mindset forever.
0: Well, and what I've been impressed with you, John, over the years that we've known each other is just you look at data, you look at research, you're not just kind of flying by the seat of your pants playing politics uh, by this, but you're trying to make decisions based upon what the research says, Uh, what it says, how we can have fewer people in our prisons, how we actually rehabilitate, correct people rather than
1: just... Punishing and incarcerating, I, it drives me nuts that we allow public policy to not be data-driven. It, for me, it's inexcusable. Yeah. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. I don't care if you're a progressive who thinks that government needs to be bigger, or you're a conservative who thinks government government needs to be smaller. Our decisions have to be driven by data and research. And it isn't, and, and it's it's so rare that that happens. I mean, the medical field it happens every day. Yeah, sure. And that's why we don't life make decisions without it, up, it, correct? Of course. Yeah. So I don't understand why we allow public policy.
0: Well, why don't we? Well, I mean, you've you've been at this. I mean, so you get appointed by uh, Governor Corbett, yeah, uh, actually, Republican, yeah.
1: Yeah, my first appointment was by Rendell to the uh, Pennsylvania Board of Pardons. Okay, mm-hmm. in 07. and um, I got on the radar scope because. Pe- Franklin County ended up having a real good story. Ultra-conservative county, significantly reduced their jail population, created a a continuum of diversions to really address addiction. And and I got to tell you, we had great leadership in the county with the county commissioners. And when you say diversions, you're talking about
0: ways in which you actually help people get the the help, whether it's mental health or other uh, needs that go beyond just being locked up. Is that what you mean by that? Addiction and mental health are the
1: two drivers of of population in America, period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 75% of the population in state prisons are addicted. nearly 30 percent mentally ill mm. not two discrete groups there's a lot of overlap yeah. between those sure. two so in franklin county we just said look if if we have to use incarceration let's use it but if we can put them somewhere else create some structure in their life but get them services um why wouldn't we do that and then the the real dynamic that works at, that worked at franklin county and again super fiscally conservative area is if someone is in jail um like they're on work release during the day, but in jail at night, we're responsible for their meals and medical. If they're in jail during the day, like a day reporting center, mm-hmm. and home at night, that's on their ticket. Mm. That really resonated with residents there to say, "Look, there's no magic about the eight p.m. to eight a.m. Yeah. And if we keep them in the community, we can have them working. And, and what? Because they're coming back. They're right. Yeah. I don't want them coming yeah. back. But in many cases, they have families, and in many cases, they're breadwinners. Mm -hmm. So when when we incarcerate someone, and again, if we need to incarcerate someone, lock them up, right? And, and, you know, when you have these conversations, sometimes people say, well, you know, it's about public safety. Look, no one's making an argument that if someone commits a violent crime or someone's selling drugs and they're a high-level drug dealer, we shouldn't respond with incarceration as part of that. We just need to use it with more precision, Mm -hmm. and that's what we did in Franklin County. And so you pop up on the radar for uh, Ed Rendell,
0: who's governor. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you serve in this capacity on the board
1: of pardons. Yeah, yeah, he appointed me to the board of pardons, and that's where I met Governor Corbett, who was okay. the attorney general. Okay. Uh, who was a member of the board of pardons? It was really interesting because you had uh, Attorney General Corbett, obviously super conservative, kind of uptight uh, <laughs> dude. Who I could, who I still talk to on a regular basis and really uh, like on a personal level. Uh, I think he's one of the, the best men, like someone who just wanted to do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly that didn't always translate to his policy, certainly as governor. But, but he really, I knew working for him, if I did what I thought was the right thing, no matter you what the minions around him said, I knew I was going to be okay. Mm. Um, but also the Board of Pardons was run by Catherine Baker Knoll. Who I mean uh-huh. could not be more opposite philosophically, <laughs> but a great lady in herself. I mean, I really enjoyed. Uh, she would host a dinner for us every every month that we had a hearing uh, at the residence, and we would talk policy. And, uh, and remember, you know, so Lebanon County very conservative, uh-huh. Berks County very conservative, Franklin County k- 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 conservative. <laughs> and then I remember the first time I was at uh, her place. And there's this discussion. And she said, thank God for the unions. <laughs> I did a double take. I had never heard anybody you know, say that before. Uh, but just a great lady. And, um, and we did important work because at that time, the only way someone could get a clean record, even uh, a kid, a college kid who got busted for shoplifting, was to go through the board of pardons. And that's relevant because, heck, some of these kids couldn't student teach because they had this, had this, this criminal record. So uh, the, mo- the bulk of our cases when I was on the pardons board were people who weren't incarcerated, who committed a crime 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago and just wanted it off their record. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: and I know that that's something that even Senator Scott Wagner has been looking to do—is kind of expunge people's records. Correct? I mean, is it? What? I—I guess I'm getting a little ahead of myself. No, with we, Some of the policy changes that took place under Corbett that actually introduced us uh, and our kind of connector was uh, Jane Leader Janisak. Yes, yes. Uh, got and daughter, Governor yeah, Leader, yep, yeah. And Governor Leader, of course. What while a great guy he was. Guy still he alive, was oh yeah. yeah, amazing. I mean, it, it was. I mean, that story, and you probably can tell it even better than I can, uh, but that Jane, uh, his daughter, basically said nuts to the political, uh, you know, division that's out there, the partisan divide. Uh, I want to get this done for my dad before he passes. Uh, And I know that uh, Governor Leader didn't expect for the policy reforms that you got done, that you led under the Corbett years, uh, to actually pass not just by, you know, uh, with bipartisan support, but unanimous. Yeah, it was pretty uh, support,
1: pretty amazing run. And, and 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 you you and I both know, public policy in in Harrisburg or in D.C. That's it's a heavy lift. Yeah. and it's hard work. Oh yeah, and um, and there's because so tough many people. on crime
0: was the mantra, oh. right? For. Decades Uh, Lock them up. Uh, Should be tough on
1: taxpayers. (laughs) 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 That's that's actually more accurate than tough on crime. That's
0: ultimately, I think, what the realization was from the conservative side, if you will, is that, that, look, this is a—I mean, it's more expensive to send people to the state pen— than to Penn State. Absolutely. And that when you start looking at it from a financial standpoint, of course, the human capital is an important aspect of this that I think it's been lost for a long time. The notion that as we're talking here of 90, 95, 99% of the people going into our correction systems are coming back to our community. So if we're not doing a good job when we're spending what? 35,000, 42, uh, 42 yeah. Okay. It's only going up. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we're not doing a good job with that, like you said, spend it once, Yeah, we're, uh, we, but we're not, we're spending it multiple times. And,
1: and we are. And I think par- part of the context here and, and you and I are approximately the same age, right? We're in exactly the same, exactly ballpark. The same. Oh, 69. Yeah. <laughs> Taking over the world. <laughs> um, you know when I grew up, I had a margin of error, and one of the things that frustrates me and I spend a lot of time talking about education and um, early childhood education those kinds of things we 've removed the margin of error from kids <laughs> and it, it and, and as a society i don 't get it, and part of it is the breakup of the family yeah. you know and and so maybe we expect the school system to parent and and maybe um, well, certainly, what kindergarten was when you and I went to kindergarten, yeah. there's an assumption that we had a core set of skills, and in many, most cases, those skills were built by our parents, yeah. right? right, by reading right. to us and those kinds of things. And now these kids don't, especially the kids that who end up incarcerated, don't yeah. have that yeah. core set of skills. But but we've removed the margin of error. If if I grew up in this time now, I would not be running mm. the state prisons mm-hmm. because you know when I went to school. Um, there may have been a fight or two and I may have been disciplined and suspended. I wasn't arrested for yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a criminal offense to be a kid. Yeah. And when you look at what we criminalize now. And so when you talk about um, the work that uh, Scott Wagner and um, Anthony Williams, yeah. uh, an unlikely duo, right? right? right yes. Yeah. But um, they're doing around clean slate. It's really uh, a response to that. And, and I think, my preference and my bias would be that government gets proactive mm-hmm. and not have to respond to that, yeah. but that's not going to happen, yeah. at least in the, in the short term. So what Clean Slate does and why it's, it's such a brilliant design is that it automatically seals criminal records after 10 years of non-criminal behavior um, for, I think it's just misdemeanants. I think it's all misdemeanants. Yeah. But what's cool about that is no one has to do anything, so it happens automatically. Mm-hmm. The second part that's really unique. And so basically, was, you do something dumb as a kid that didn't, you know, harm somebody in in a
0: in a way that, of course, you should be punished uh, for. But it doesn't
1: keep you from, you know, uh, gainful employment uh, and so forth. Exactly, and sealing records versus expunging allows okay. for a law enforcement use of it. Uh huh. So. Hey, you did so, good. Yeah, we recognize this yeah. by sealing the records for employment purposes. But if you start going down the same path that you were yeah. before, uh, law back. enforcement can still use that. <laughs> yeah. So it's a really brilliant design. I think, it, unless someone beat us to it, it would be the first of its kind in the country. Really, and and I think the, the thing about criminal justice and uh, around the country is that this has been a nonpartisan issue. Yeah, and and actually. The movement started in Texas, Mm -hmm. you know, where they instead of right wingers. Yeah. (laughs) Franklin County on the state level. Right. (laughs) I mean, they just decided that that throwing more money at prison construction when they could throw money at uh, treatment programs and keep people out of prison made a lot more fiscal sense. And and it's really taken off. And when you look at at why I'm still optimistic, even in the era of Trump, that this is going to keep going, it's driven largely by the right. And yeah. the southern red states are leaders in reducing their use of incarceration. Well, uh, we got involved mm-hmm. with Right on Crime when I was at
0: Commonwealth Foundation over 10 years ago. I mean, recognizing that uh, there was a fiscal aspect of this. And, of course, the human capital, once you get into it. Well, that's, uh, I think both yeah. a fiscal yeah.
1: imperative and a moral imperative. Yeah. Yes. And I think uh, oftentimes, uh, and, and I got to just, my caveat is I despise partisanism. Yeah. I, I don't care what, uh, what side of the aisle you're on. I Actually, I don't even think there are two sides. I think yeah. that's a falsehood. <laughs> I think it's all constituent. Well, driven I, I can
0: say I see that in you because, uh, honestly, uh, John, I wouldn't know if you're registered Republican or Democrat or what you are because I think that you have approached us in a very non-political, and that's to your credit. And it's, I think, also why. Uh, I think you were the only holdover secretary from the Corbett Republican years to— the Wolf uh, Democrat years, Is yeah, that Gary correct? Tennis. Okay, but then he, but he, he <laughs> yeah, he left uh. Ceremon- unceremoniously. Uh, <laughs> left as as some have, but uh, we'll have we, we know that won't be your departure. But what well, uh, I mean that's where I think that you're data driven, uh, that you're saying I want to solve this problem. That my success, my measurement of success is that we have fewer people incarcerated and fewer people in that uh, recidivism,
1: crime. right? The, well, the actually, recidivism rates. Our measurement is crime rate. Okay. And, and that so do I control crime in the community? No. But I think when you release 20,000 people from a, from a system who have a criminal history, you have a role in it. Yeah. And, and if you're not focused on making them less likely to commit a crime— um, that then, then I don't think we're doing right by, by the citizens. You know, citizens are investing $2.6 billion into the state correction system.
0: So number three, what after education and welfare, it's the third largest uh, budgetary item in our budget,
1: correct? Yep, yep, yep. and it has been, and, and probably the fastest growing percentage-wise. Okay. You know, the, the special session on crime in 1995 uh, caused this growth and, and prison boom and all this stuff. Um, so I, I think we, I feel, and and my staff and the folks who work in the department feel that our job is public safety, and public safety doesn't just mean no one's jumping the fence, which is an important part of our job, right? <laughs> and it doesn't just mean they're not, that our staff are it's safe, MA's safe. Yeah, yeah. But if we're really about public safety, then people should leave our system better than they came in. With and the, you
0: think you're doing that better today than when you first came in uh, back yeah. in, in 2011, right? Is when you first started at the state level? I think we made level. some progress,
1: okay. um, but the, the numbers are still not where I want it to okay. be. Um, what's lacking? Why, why, what, what's keeping you from getting this done right now, John? Um, well, I mean, first of all, it's, it's hard work. Yeah. And well, you're
0: talking about how many? You're over fifty thousand people. No, we're down to forty-eight. Uh, okay. So, so all right. So let's kind of jump back. So you better update your website. So you- I'll, just, <laughs> I'll
1: get on that. Yeah, <laughs> I've been slacking on getting that website updated. Um, so when when we, you know, we put together a coalition to mm-hmm. when I, really my first year. To try to create the environment. Yeah, I'm we,
0: sitting next to the ACLU at this at these it's meetings. It's the craziest right? yeah, thing. Yeah, it wasn't. I, I tell that story all the
1: time. <laughs> so we put this meeting together. Uh, Governor Leader kind of uh-huh. convened it. And, and I just got to say, Governor Leader is one of the most amazing men that I've ever met. He, he actually, we actually really bonded. Yeah. And I would stop in his office and, and see him. and I Just a brilliant guy. Even He up was sharp the all
0: end. the way, yep. yep. I remember him. In his t- 90s, just... Sharp as a tack.
1: I remember him telling me about creating, um, having a state control special ed Hmm. because he knew that the school systems wouldn't do right by individuals with a handicap. Hmm. And so I I said, that was you? He's like, yeah, well, this was the problem, and I knew this. So he was just so good at problem solving. Mm -hmm. And I remember him talking to me, like the first, second time we met, we were talking about delivering drug and alcohol programs, and he said, have you thought about just bringing people in at night to do it part-time, then you don't have the fringe benefit costs, and it just- Because just he
0: was a businessman as well, right? Yeah, so he, really, he brought those business principles to, how do we solve these public problems?
1: And I think, you know, someone like him is a rare breed today, yeah, because yeah. it wasn't, so many times, key policymakers default to what they know, not what they learn or what they're trying to accomplish, right? So if all we do is default to what we've always known, we'll get what we always got. And He wasn't like that. So we put this group together, and I tell people all the time, I remember Reggie Shuford, who was the head of the ACLU, (laughs) and you were sitting next to each other, (laughs) and like halfway through me, I look over, and you guys are bonding, and I go, oh, my God, (laughs) we have lightning in the bottle. you know. (laughs) And we went through this process where we looked at the data and what was driving prison population, and And we did it in the way that we should be doing uh, we should be doing yeah. government policy, yeah. which is get everybody in the room who has a stake in it and figure out where you have consensus, and let's move the needle. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we get criticized from advocates um, from the left who say we didn't go far enough. Yeah. We get criticized from people from the right who said we went too far, so we probably got it right. Yeah. And um, but the bottom line is, when we were in that room, in the room where we were negotiating and discussing this stuff, it was really focused on outcomes and data, and that's the only way you get good government policy. Yeah, and and it's because it's not about what your opinion was of of crime or criminal justice five years ago or four years ago. It's, what is the data telling me? What have other systems done that have had a positive impact on this? Um, but it always starts with yeah. data.
0: Well, and I think that that's how you can get two sides that have different principles but are able to compromise on the policies that moves you forward towards your goal. Because I think that, look, while... Uh, The ACLU and Commonwealth Foundation will have different principles. Um, Many times our end goal of whether it's reduced crime uh, or a better education system, We, we, we want that. It's how we get there and that if you can say, let's work together, figure out. Uh, what those compromises need to be on the policies that still enable you to pursue your principles, that's that's when you have these amazing things happen like what happened in 2012.
1: Yeah, and actually, I think, I don't see, when you talk about um, groups like the ACLU and Commonwealth Foundation, I think the thing that, that the right gets hammered for on on this issue that, that I think is just inaccurate is that it's this is just a fiscal imperative. Yeah. But I got to tell you, it's a moral imperative, yeah. and it's, you know, having families and family values are, are a value that is shared by both sides. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when
0: you get close to it, John, and I think that that's probably bet was the failure of the conservative Republican side of this, is they didn't get close to it, to see exactly what was happening to families, uh, to the unfairness of the system at times, uh, and what it did to really uh, further the divide. In families, rather than bringing them together, and once conservatives got closer
1: to it and saw it, I think that that's when you saw the change. Yeah, I think uh, th- I think that's accurate, and and I would I, I would lay that that kind of tenet over the opioid epidemic that we're dealing yeah. with right now. And, and I will tell you that that in in public policy, proximity rules the day, mm. and when key decision makers are proximate to the problem. Yeah. Things change. And so there's, again, a lot of conspiracy theories, and they they really compare and contrast the crack era where we responded by locking a bunch of people up. uh, But the crack epidemic really focused on poor minority areas versus the heroin uh, era where we're saying we can't arrest our way out of it. Uh And people are saying, oh, it's just racism. Look, we overuse incarceration, especially for minorities. So you can't say that race isn't part of it. But I would argue that it's more about proximity, it's more about the fact that this opioid epidemic is touching every community. And so people are saying, oh, wait a second. I, I, I say this all the time. If it's us versus them, them is always in trouble. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but when, when we realize that it, it's not us versus them, it's we, then we can get good public policy. Yeah. That's why I'm optimistic that the the way we're approaching this opioid epidemic, where everybody understands we all have a stake in it, we got to figure it out, gives me some optimism that we're not just going to default to use criminal justice as the the vehicle or the system to address a public health issue.
0: So what are you working on right now? What do you see the big opportunities are uh, for whether you get a whole nother uh, year or another five I, I don't know maybe even no matter who the next governor is they want to keep you on you're going to stick around well uh, no, see, yeah. we'll see right tomorrow right. is not
1: promised to anyone right. fair
0: <laughs> enough uh fair enough uh what are you working on right now John that's kind of the big stuff that uh could be transformative in Pennsylvania and where do you need uh the legislature to get its act together
1: yeah <laughs> that second question how much time do we have um no, episode two. Is, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> the remix. Right. <laughs> um, so I think one of the things that I've really enjoyed about uh, working for the Wolf administration is um, I've been allowed to um, kind of be out of the traditional lane of a corrections secretary, and I've spent a lot of time and effort around uh, early childhood education and finding a way to identify kids as early on in their life as possible who are likely to be incarcerated. My evolution as far as... Because
0: a, before you go there, because one of the biggest common denominators amongst people in our prisons is a lack of a good education, right? 39.5% I mean,
1: yeah. of our new commitments do, don't have a high school diploma. Okay. And I would double down on that and yeah. tell you that a young black kid who drops out of school has a 70% lifetime likelihood of being incarcerated. Really? Yeah. And so you could make an honest argument... That if you just keep kids in school and get them to graduate, you're reducing crime. Mm-hmm. And to me, again, government historically takes a reactive posture. Something happens, we hurry up and pass a law that we think is going to address it. We don't measure it, we don't uh, we don't sunshine it. We never revisit it. And next thing you know, we got bloated <laughs> systems. Yeah. We right? need more
0: money for it. Yes. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So
1: let's measure. Yeah. You know, oddly enough, my uh, last Democratic. Uh, commissioner I work for in Franklin County, a guy named Bob Ziebraski. He would always say, "I want to measure twice and cut once." What's that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Good I carpenter. Really, I really think that's you know that's that's what we try to do yeah. here. So, for me, one of the areas that uh, the big push for us is the front end of the system and uh, education, and in particular, uh, in the fiscal code. Uh, without saying a dirty word, uh, we passed the First Chance Act which is a first of its kind in the country, which creates a charitable trust within the Pennsylvania commission on crime and delinquency that is funded through a 1% surcharge on state contracts with the department of corrections over $5 million um, that goes to specifically fund programs for at-risk kids in areas that, that uh, have high crime and send a lot of people to state prison. Okay. Um, so two categories of kids really fall into this. What? Well, Kids exposed to trauma are, are generally the highest risk kids. But trauma-led exposure mm. creates crime, mm. right? Um, lack of education, a lot of violence in your community creates crime. Parent incarcerated creates crime. Parent a victim of a crime creates crime. And so if you lay over all these other measures, unemployment and all that stuff, it comes up to the same communities. So this is a really cool opportunity uh, to try to be... Proactive, and, and the programs are not magical. Big Brothers and Big Sisters, yeah. Boys and Girls Club. There's a program called Amachi. Yeah, uh, sure. Who, and that's Big Brothers and Big mm-hmm. Sisters for children of incarcerated parents. These programs get kids to be able to recognize their opportunities. I'm really uh, proud of the First Chance Trust Fund because it's the first of its kind in the country. And the fact that it's a charitable trust allows the, the vendors to get a tax deduction for it. Um, so when we... Came up with this concept, we talked to all our big vendors and said, What's mm-hmm. your reaction to this? And they said, Um, across the board, they said, Don't cap us at one percent, and that we all we have a portion that we give to charity, yeah. Um, so it just, it, I, and we have a lot of big national vendors, I really think it's directing their charitable giving to Pennsylvania kids. So I'm really proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a big initiative yeah. for us. Like I said, early childhood education is a big initiative for us at the prison. Uh, we just combined with Pearl, uh, which is uh, a bit controversial in that. And uh, I know
0: you were working. At, you were talking about that for a long, long
1: time. I was, and I'll tell you why. Because we work with the same people. Yeah, yeah. And the notion that that you would take two bureaucracies and you would pass the in, same individual off from one to the other when it could be within the same mm-hmm. area eliminates administrative redundancy. But I think more importantly, gives us a cohesive focus, a cohesive mission. Um, and so we've been working on this actually the last year the Corbett administration we were talking about it we ended up um, you know get in the election year it wasn't the most productive year for the Corbett administration um, and then when governor wolf came in it was one of the first things from a criminal justice standpoint uh, was reducing the number of agencies in, in state government which in theory would be a very you know conservative Republican yeah. concept um, so actually the Senate passed a bill that was part of the budget deal that fell apart. um, And it didn't happen. Uh, There's a provision in administrative code that allows for uh, administrative uh, mergers or consolidations when uh, two agencies do the same thing from an efficiency standpoint. Uh, So we use that and by MOU combine the two agencies. And when I say that, the field supervision and the administrative aspects of both agencies. What's not combined is the parole board's independent decision making or the Office of Victim Advocate or the Sex Offender Assessment Board. And we're, it's a big you know, imagine taking these two bureaucracies and, and putting them together yeah. and operate as yeah. one team. Uh, it's as much we're working right now to really get the two agencies to, to develop a joint culture because, listen, good public policy deliver is great to deliver it and operationalize it takes hard work and takes bringing people together and leadership and building a culture. But everyone has to understand our job is to create uh, individuals who come through our system to be successful when yeah. they get out. Like, that's our yeah. job. Yeah. And when they step out of line, we have a, a responsibility to hold them accountable. But we got to be about their success. Yeah. I mean, Well, and that's
0: what I've appreciated you about you, John, is that, that you have your eyes on the goal – and the goal being, let's, let's make sure we have the best corrections, that we're locking up the people that ought to be locked up. But we're also giving people the, the needs to be a successful, productive member of society when they come out as well for those. And that's what I've appreciated about how you've operated outside of the, the partisan bickering and yeah. uh, getting things done. Uh, but as we wrap up, uh, most probably one of the more important things uh, uh, to, to discuss Eagles or Steelers? Oh, Eagles. Okay, and are, is this their year?
1: Is this the year that they're Listen, going to go and I've win the been Super an Bowl? Eagles fan all my life. <laughs> I, I hope and pray this is our year. It looks like we have a good shot. The quarterback's great. Most importantly, offensive line is dominant. They can put a little weight on their hands, come off the ball, and smack people.
0: Hey, everything as a former offensive lineman, I understand no. that's the key. They, if you don't have a good offensive
1: line, it doesn't matter. Let me Uh, tell you my favorite quote, and this is how I live my life from a policy standpoint. Russ Grimm at his Hall of Fame, he said, there's nothing better than moving a man from point A to point B against his will. (laughs) And I try to do that from a public policy standpoint. And from a, a offensive line standpoint, nothing better, as you know, than coming off the ball, driving someone, get to that tipping point and pancake. You bet. And a little knee somewhere on the I, way out. I
0: can still relive those days from 30 years ago yeah. of what I'm, that I'm was like. I'm sore just talking yeah. about it now. <laughs> well, John, I appreciate that you're taking time here on Brews and Views, and uh, hopefully we'll continue the conversation about other successes in corrections reform in the future.
1: Yeah, and look forward to, you know, future partnerships. I mean, public policy, good public policy is about unlikely partners. And it's about the ACLU and Commonwealth Foundation coming together for the right cause. So I look forward to future partnership. Thank you, John. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners
0: Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.